0: Good morning, Veritas. My name is Kyle McFarlane, and I have the great joy of serving as one of the elders here. I want to welcome you all here this morning, and I hope you guys had a very Merry Christmas yesterday. Uh, you should have received a little handout on your way in from the fantastic First Impressions team. On the bottom of that handout is a connect card. If you're new with us today or want to get connected in a deeper way, please fill that out. And then after the gathering on the other side of these curtains, we'll have some partners there to answer any questions you may have. These last four weeks, we've gone through a series on Advent looking at the good news and great joy that culminated in the celebration of Jesus, the Messiah's birth yesterday. Jesus coming down to be the incarnate word, Emmanuel, God with us, is such an incredible thing. But he didn't come just to have his birth celebrated. He came to pay a debt that a sinful creation owed so he could reconcile us to himself. Go ahead and open up your Bible or your Bible app to the book of Philemon In case you've never heard of Philemon or it's been a while, it's in the back. It's after Titus Titus, and before Hebrews. It's only one page, so go slow as you get back there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on this back table. We'd love for you to have one and follow along. If you don't own a Bible, please keep it. We deeply love and value the Bible here. and We'd love for you to have one to go through the Bible reading plan with us as a church throughout the week. This might be the first time that you've heard Philemon preach during the Christmas season or maybe the first time at all, and that's Okay. When I was asked about preaching today, I was given the opportunity to choose any passage that I wanted. I chose this little letter because I think it highlights the gospel in so many ways. What we're going to see today is how the birth we celebrated yesterday of Jesus is what enables the possibility of reconciliation in this story to take place. The main idea of this letter is that through Jesus, rebellious people can be granted forgiveness and brought into the family of God. So with that, let's get started in the text. God speaks to us this morning like this. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. "'whose father I became in my imprisonment. "'Formerly he was useless to you, "'but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. "'I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. "'I would have been glad to keep him with me "'in order that he might serve me on your behalf "'during my imprisonment for the gospel. "'But I preferred to do nothing without your consent "'in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, "'but of your own accord. "'For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, "'that you might have him back forever.' No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristocras, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So there's a lot to unpack this story, but let's first start with some context. The first thing we need to talk about is slavery because it's brought up in this letter in verse 16. The ESV which we preach out of has rendered the original Greek term here as bond servant which is indentured servant while most other translations render it as slave. We as Americans hear slavery and immediately go to the horrific chattel slavery that occurred for more than two centuries here in our country. That was an absolutely abhorrent practice but that was not the norm during this time. There was certainly chattel slavery that occurred But the normative practice was to voluntarily enter into a period of indentured servitude in order to pay off a debt. Two examples that I've heard to help describe this use in modern era are professional sports and mortgages. While these aren't perfect in and of themselves taken together, they can help. The first is that of professional sports. When an individual signs a contract with a professional sports team, they're voluntarily giving up some of their rights and freedoms in order to earn this income. They have obligations and responsibilities placed on them. They have to go to practice, they have to go to meetings, they have to do media events, and then they actually have to play the game they're paid to do. They can't choose to switch teams whenever they want, they have to be released from the team, or a team can trade them to another organization. Now, most of us are not professional athletes, nor will we ever be. So something that will be helpful to more of us is that of a mortgage. Proverbs 22 tells us that the the borrower is slave to the lender. No one makes somebody take out a mortgage, but many of us have willingly chosen to subjugate ourselves to the bank in order to buy a house for our family. We decided that the benefits of this purchase that we cannot afford outright outweighs the shackle that comes with a 15 or 30 year monthly mortgage payment. This is usually the largest single expense in any family's budget as well. This is modern day indentured servitude, and it's the same basic premise in this time of society. Having this understanding of what the term bond servant means here in this passage, Let's continue with our understanding of the context. We learn from the text that there are three main people involved here. Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. The Apostle Paul is the one writing this letter. But instead of making note that he's an apostle for Christ Jesus, like he's done in several other letters, here he introduces himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And it makes sense because he's currently imprisoned in Rome. And then we have Philemon. Philemon's a wealthy believer that has a local church, most likely the Colossian church meeting in his home. We see his wealth in the fact that he has bond servants and he has a guest room in his home. But we also see that he's a loving and a faithful man, which is appropriate as his name means affectionate. Remember this as we go through the letter. Philemon is not known as a cranky, cruel, vindictive Scrooge. In fact, he's known for being quite the opposite. And then we have Onesimus. Onesimus is a bond servant to Philemon, Likely stole something or wronged Philemon in some way and then ran away. He ended up making his way to Rome, which seems like a pretty good place to run away to. It's over 1,300 miles away, and it being a large city, it's easy to start a new life there. But rather than a new life on the run, providentially, this new life for, Phile- for Onesimus came in a form of spiritual life as he crossed paths with the imprisoned Apostle Paul, who shared the good news of Jesus with him. After his conversion, Onesimus began to serve Paul and assist with his ministry there in Rome. We see in verses 13 and 14 that Paul would have liked to have him stay and continue helping. However, there was a wrong done by Onesimus to his master Philemon. And Paul knows that confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation between the two of them through Christ is better for everyone than to just have Onesimus stay and help. So, Paul is writing this letter to help with the reconciliation between these two brothers. Now we have a working working context of the letter. Let's dive back in to see what Paul is saying about reconciliation. Let's go back to the text as we look at the first seven verses. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and another the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Verses one through three are in keeping with common introductions for a letter during this time. We see that it's addressed primarily to Philemon, a couple others by name, and then to the local church that met in his home. The fact that it was addressed to the local church as well is quite interesting, and it's something that we're going to come back to later on. Paul goes on to encourage Philemon by letting him know that he's praying for him and to continue the good works of love and faithfulness that Christ is working on in him. This is not an attempt by Paul to butter Philemon up before the request, because Paul routinely encourages the recipients of his letter, no matter what the body of the letter is about. And then, in Paul's typical fashion, as soon as he finishes the encouragement, he jumped straight into the matter at hand. Let's go back to the text to see Paul's main purpose of the letter. We'll start in verse eight and read through verse 17. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So, that's a lot to digest at once, so we're gonna break it up as we go through. The first thing we're gonna look at is the request of Paul. This request is found in verse 15 through 17. Paul's request to Philemon is to receive Anismis back into his household. But no longer as a bondservant. No, this time, have him back as a brother. Remembering that Onesimus is a man who was an indentured servant who likely stole from him and then ran away. And Paul is asking Philemon to forgive all the wrongs done by Onesimus and his original debt and then welcome him back into his home like he would for the Apostle Paul? This is not a small request. In fact, this request is totally revolutionary and against the norms of society. Doing this would certainly cause a stir for those who heard and would likely annoy or anger other masters in the area. It just wasn't a thing in Roman society. And yet, it's exactly the thing that Paul is calling Philemon to do because of his walk with Jesus. Paul is very clear in verses 8-10 through that this is not a direct command, which he has the authority as an apostle to do. Rather, he makes it an appeal to a friend, and more than that, to a brother in Christ. Paul is trying to persuade Philemon to do the right thing here. This is an example of loving pastoral guidance that outright says what needs to be done, but in a way that recognizes people need to be given the opportunity to let the Holy Spirit work in their own lives by their choice. If you're commanded or coerced into doing something by someone in a position of spiritual leadership, there's no real benefit to you. God looks deeper than actions and behaviors. He looks to our thoughts, our motives, and our reasons. Now, in order for Paul to persuade Philemon into receiving Onesimus back as a brother, he lists some reasons why this is the best choice for him. Paul doesn't just tell Philemon to do it because it's good. He gives several reasons why this is the right thing to do. Paul calls Onesimus his child in verse 10, and his very heart in verse 12. This shows the deep endearment and relationship that Paul has developed with Onesimus through Jesus in their time together in Rome. Paul, starting the reasons off this way, is showing Philemon that it can be done, and it sets the foundation for everything else. If Paul views Onesimus as a child, of course he's going to seek what's best for him. And for Philemon to deny the request is to basically reject Paul because children could be viewed as representatives or emissaries of their parents. The next reason Paul gives is that Onesimus is now useful to Philemon. Verse 11 says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. This reason from Paul is a little ironic given that the name Onesimus means useful. Paul acknowledges that Onesimus had an obligation to work for Philemon before and did not do what was required of him. But now that Onesimus has a new master in Jesus, he's prepared to come back and serve Philemon in the way he should have before. Onesimus has been working for and with the Apostle Paul in Rome. Now will work just as hard back home in Colossae. The next reason that Paul gives to Philemon to forgive and reconcile with Onesimus, is that they are now brothers, and they're going to be brothers forever. Paul makes the point that he considers Onesimus a brother, and that Onesimus is a brother to Philemon, both now in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is getting at the supremacy of being a part of the spiritual family of Jesus over any earthly family or societal ties. It does not matter to Paul about someone's wealth, social status, citizenship, religious background, political affiliation, or anything else. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and everyone needs to hear about the good news of Jesus and be welcomed in as family. Jesus certainly does not limit himself to or from any temporal differentiation that man can make up. He came to purchase the freedom of all those who would call on him as Lord. Paul makes clear that this familial bond is recognized as lasting into eternity and that it is a good thing. And then we have verse 15. And here we get a little insight into how Paul sees God's ability to redeem what seems like a bad situation to us and use it for his glory. Now, does it always end up in a good situation like this? Sadly, no, it does not. Will we always have the privilege of knowing how a situation can be used for God's glory? I think we all know that that's not the case, and that can be really frustrating. I know that I like to be in control, often too much so, and there's been moments in my life where things seemed outside of the control of God, or that He was asleep at the wheel with what was happening in my life. I wish I could tell you that I leaned deeper into my trust in Him, but I didn't. I didn't have a close gospel community that I was a part of that could point me to Jesus during this time. And I walked away from the faith for two years. But then I heard my two year old giggle for the first time. And it was in that moment that I realized we're not entitled to know why God allows certain things to happen. I still didn't like the situation, but I knew that I had to trust in him. And I admit it can be really hard to do at times. Here, Paul is just suggesting that Onesimus' faith in Jesus and his joining the family of God might be the reason why God allowed Onesimus to run away. But even the Apostle Paul knows he can't claim to know why God allows certain things to happen. Paul continues to try and persuade Philemon by appealing to their partnership in verse 17 and then goes on in verses 18 and 19 to address the fact that loss and wrong has been done to Philemon by Onesimus. Verse 18 and 19 say, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. This is a pretty bold statement for Paul to make considering he's currently in prison, he's not working, and he's only surviving by the generosity of believers giving to support his ministry. What Paul is getting at here is that there's a recognition that there can be a barrier to reconciliation at times, and that the barrier can't just be ignored. It has to be addressed. Now, addressing it can look like talking through the issue, repentance, restitution, someone else offering to repay like Paul is doing here, or even if the grieved party chooses to take the loss upon themselves and grant forgiveness to the other person which can be hard. As Paul is making his appeal to Philemon about debts, he makes a comment that kind of turns the positions of people around. In the second half of verse 19, after the hyphen, that to say nothing of, it's a lot like when someone is asking you to do something, and then to nail their point home, they bring up something that they've done for you in the past and go, well, not to mention this other thing. You know good and well they meant to mention it. That's why they said it. They're just trying to be slick and convince you of the ask. I think that's what Paul's doing here when he brings up the significant debt that Philemon owes. Paul calls it your own self, and it likely refers to Paul's role in the conversion of Philemon into becoming a disciple of Jesus. As scholar William Barclay puts it, Philemon is turned from creditor to debtor in the space of two verses and loaded with a debt so large, your very self, that he is under limitless obligation to Paul. Excuse me. The last appeal Paul makes to Philemon is verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Here, Paul is asking to have his heart refreshed. This calls back to their partnership and friendship with one another and to Philemon's character and actions toward the other saints. Paul even encouraged Philemon about this in verse 7 when he said, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now Paul is saying to Philemon, do the same for me by granting this request because it's good for you anyways. Now we looked at Paul's reasons why Philemon should grant the request. We'll look at three potential outcomes. There's rejection, partial acceptance, and total acceptance of the request of Paul. We'll start with what I think is the least likely, and that would be a rejection of Paul's ask. We need to keep in mind that in this culture and period in history, there were few protections, if any, for servants and slaves. And when Onesimus rebelled and ran away, he left himself open to whatever punishment Philemon deemed appropriate should he return. Philemon was well within his cultural rights to have Onesimus flogged, thrown in prison, or potentially even executed. There was significant risk for servants and slaves that rebelled against their master. This must have been something that crossed their mind. This is probably part of the reason why Onesimus chose to run some 1,300 miles away. And yet, Paul is sending him back to face an uncertain future. And this had to have crossed Onesimus' mind on the long trip back to Colossae. But his trust in Jesus' providence enabled him to make that journey back to face his master. Another possible outcome for Onesimus' return is that of partial acceptance, where Philemon would forgive the wrongs done by Onesimus, but not the original debt. Here he would receive Onesimus back, but still as a bondservant and not as a brother. The last possible outcome, and the most likely to have occurred, is that Philemon grants the request of Paul to not only forgive Onesimus of the wrongs he has done, but to go further and receive Onesimus back in a higher position than he left, to free Onesimus of all obligations of debt and servitude, and to recognize him as a brother. Based off the introduction of this letter and the character of Philemon and Paul's comment in verse 21, that he's confident that Philemon will do even more than he asks, we can reasonably presume that this is the outcome that occurred. And Paul can have this confidence because he knows and has experienced the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in his own life and relationships. Paul went from ravaging the early church to now being cared for by them. This is because what Jesus did on the cross does not only reconcile his disciples to himself and to the Father, but it also reconciles and restores relationships that seem too far gone among people. So what do we do with this letter? There are a few things that this letter implicates for disciples of Jesus to be aware of in the practice. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're first going to jump back to the letter of who it was written to. If you remember, it was written to both Philemon and the church that met in this house. It is interesting that Paul is writing to Philemon about a decision that is his to make, but yet this letter is addressed to the church as well, especially when we consider that the church got their own letter, what we call the book of Colossians, delivered at the same time. This makes it clear that the support of the local church is absolutely necessary to live out the faith we're called to. Who do you have in your life right now that you're vulnerable with about your hardships and that they know they have the responsibility to call you to follow Christ in all areas of your life? I'm talking about the real heart hurts and struggles that we have. Family members or close friends in the hospital with serious health issues, struggling with control over alcohol use, same-sex attraction, addicted to pornography, battling with depression or another mental health illness, being angry and constantly on edge, you're struggling with still being single at this point in your life, or your marriage is absolutely falling apart. These are real and hard things that happen to real people in Jesus' church. Follower of Jesus, you're not meant to deal with this on your own. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but don't have any of these relationships, you're missing out on the beauty of the bride of Christ. Join a community group. Walk alongside another believer through this. Dig deep. Allow others to take some relational ownership of you and you of them by discipling each other and pointing each other to Jesus. Let's take this time of year and look at it. The holiday season is full of joy and excitement for so many people, but it can also be really hard for some. There are times that family relationships or former friendships are ugly, messy, just plain hard. These strained relationships can be from hurtful words or actions in the past. And it can be that just the memory of that person or event brings you to seethe in anger or to feel lost and abandoned. I can tell you the anger and pain that you feel is not hurting them. Your inward anger and pain is only hurting you and those close to you. As followers of Jesus, we're called to forgive one another, even when they don't think they did anything wrong in the first place that caused you all this pain, or if they meant to hurt you. brother and sister, Jesus is the one person who is able to restore you and gives you the power through the Holy Spirit to forgive them. Having other followers of Jesus aware of your struggles allows the Holy Spirit to speak the good news of Jesus and what he has done for you into your life. Jesus gives us a hope and a power now, not just a hope for the future. What Paul is asking would be an incredibly difficult decision for Philemon to make on his own. He has to set his pride, societal norms, and his own sense of justice to the side. When we are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ, and we let them in on the difficult areas and decisions in our lives, they can help point us to the good news of the gospel and how Jesus calls us to live. It is Philemon's decision to make, but the gospel support of his local church can drastically help with choosing to do the right thing. Let's face it, we don't always choose the right thing when we know what the right thing is. And sometimes we choose the right thing, but we don't like doing it, and so our attitude isn't there. This is where Christ-centered community comes in and supports us. Another implication from this letter deals with the demographics of a church community. It shows us that there is no partiality in Jesus' church. No one is better or more deserving to be in a church. None of us deserve the mercy and grace of God. And we should be keenly aware of this and emphatically welcome in everyone to meet Jesus. The color of skin, political alignments, socioeconomic status, age, marital status, nor anything else should preclude us from sharing the gospel and welcoming other followers of Jesus into our local family. The way that we relate and treat each other should be radically different than the way the world does. In John chapter 13, Jesus tells his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We should always seek the good of our neighbor before our own because that's what Jesus has done for us. And the last implication we'll look at today is what Paul is calling Philemon to do. And that is, he has a decision to make one way or the other forgive and reconcile or punish. Far too often, we want to defer hard questions and decisions to others or try to deflect our unpopular decisions to save face. We, as followers of Jesus, have been commanded to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us, for he is with us even to the end of the age. And what he has commanded us to do are the things in the Bible. This book is the source of absolute truth. It's not up to us to decide what does and does not fit in today's society, or what may or may not offend someone today. The Bible tells us that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And Jesus told his disciples that they will be hated for his sake. It means we need to make the hard decision to overcome our fear of being disliked or thought of as intolerant or on the wrong side of history for holding to the truths that the Bible teaches. We need to teach and share the truth as in Scripture without compromising it. But this must be done in a loving, gentle way that demonstrates the grace and mercy Jesus showed us while we were still sinners far from him. It should be the transformative work of the gospel in our lives that enables us to do these things. Even though this letter is rich in implications for ways to live a healthy Christian life, those things are not the point. The point is Jesus. Remember, the main idea for this whole letter is that through Jesus, rebellious people can be granted forgiveness and brought into the family of God. Even though Paul doesn't explicitly share the gospel here in this letter, it's so richly woven into the entire story. Let's see where Jesus and the gospel are at. But first, let me ask you, Who do you think we best relate to in the story? Is it Paul as the one urging others to walk in reconciliation and love? Is it Philemon, the one who's been wronged and is in the position to grant forgiveness? Or are you like Onesimus, the rebellious servant who wronged his master and then ran away? I think we best relate to Onesimus as rebellious people who wronged our master and creator and then ran from him we can see Paul as a model of Jesus, one who finds the runaways, the hurting, the lost, and gives them a new life far better than they could have ever imagined. Jesus, like Paul in this letter, is willing to cover the cost of the wrongs done by others in order for reconciliation to occur. Philemon, who stands in a position similar to God the Father, is the person who is wronged multiple times and is in the position to grant forgiveness Remember, though, that Philemon is merely a representation of the Father. God the Father is so much better than Philemon. He doesn't need to be asked or convinced to do the right thing. He's always going to do it. It's who he is. Every single person on this planet is like Onesimus before encountering Paul. We all have sinned or done wrong by God and are actively running from him. We were all spiritually dead because of our sin. And the only way to get the new life like Onesimus did is to meet Jesus Yesterday, we celebrated Jesus' birth because it was the beginning of God's ultimate plan of redemption. Where Paul, in this letter, tells Philemon to charge the wrongs done by Onesimus to his account, Jesus, the Messiah, does the same thing between us and the Father. Jesus says to the Father, Whatever wrongs they've done, put it on me. Every sin they've committed, put it on me. I am able and willing to pay. Except what we owed was death. Each and every one of us is deserving of death because we have sinned against the holy God. It doesn't matter if you think you're mostly a good person because you're not. There's not a scale that God will use at the end to determine whether you've been good enough because you haven't. There is nothing you can ever do to cover the cost of your sin. That cost is death. But Merry Christmas, the greatest news and gift ever given to man is that Jesus would empty himself and come to this planet in the form of man, live a perfect and sinless life, one that we are completely incapable of living, all while knowing that he was going to be betrayed, unjustly sentenced to death, beaten, spit on, mocked, flogged, and then nailed to a Roman cross to die. That is the punishment that you and I deserve. But Jesus willingly took that in our place because he loves you and he cares for you, and he wants to reconcile you to himself. Jesus did not stated though. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He is the mediator between us and the Father that allows us to talk to the Father. And this is the new life that you're given as a free gift from Jesus. If you repent of your sins, believe that Jesus did what the Bible says he did, and then follow him as Lord of your life. Repentance is turning from your sin to Jesus. And this is what Jesus wants. And he freely gives the Holy Spirit to those who believe in him, to help you follow him. He's not leaving you out to dry, hoping you muster enough strength to do it on your own. No, he's done all the work, provided everything you need. He gives us, or you have to just accept the gift of grace and salvation he's offering to you, repent of your sins, and make him the Lord of your life. The gospel continues to get better, just like the story does. Because not only did Jesus pay your debt of death from sin, he brings us into the family. After Onesimus meets Jesus through Paul, he becomes a beloved brother. Unlike this letter where the forgiveness is presumed to occur, and then we hope Onesimus was, was received as a brother, we know that God the Father will grant forgiveness and welcome into his family those who believe and follow Jesus as Lord. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are one. Just as the Father demands righteous punishment for sin, So does Jesus. The grace and mercy that is extended to you through Jesus is the same grace and mercy from the Father because they are completely united. You cannot be a brother if you're not part of the family. Jesus brings us into the family of God as brothers and sisters. Those of us who believe and follow Jesus as Lord are granted forgiveness and adopted as sons and daughters. We are co-heirs with Christ, forever a part of the family of God to know him, and enjoy a relation with him for eternity. And this letter shows what Jesus has done on our behalf in beautiful story form. The good news of great joy that we celebrated yesterday of Jesus' birth is the greatest news and gift ever given to man. God has given himself up for you and paid the debt that you owe. So as we move to a time of response, I just want to ask you, do you believe and trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross? Is Jesus your only hope in life and death? How you respond to the gift offered by Jesus is the single most important decision that you will ever make in your life. You're not promised more time to consider these claims. If you're not sure that you trust solely in Jesus, please come see myself or one of the other leaders in the back. We'd love to answer any questions you may have and introduce you to our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love and the mercy and the grace that you have given us through Jesus. Lord, we're not deserving by any means of this grace that you've given to us, but yet you did it because you loved us first. Lord, I pray that you will move in our hearts. Help us to have a fresh sense of joy. In awe at what you've done for us. Lord, show us the truths that we need to see. Help us to give up areas of our lives that we're trying to hide from you. Lord, help us make you the Lord of our life. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will confront us and comfort us with the good news of the gospel. Lord, I thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.